0: Wine. Women in the New Evangelization is a movement in the church that seeks to empower women to work within their God-given gifts as women, to nurture, heal, and build up the body of Christ. Through much prayer, the women who have come together from around the country to form wine came to understand that, whereas the Lord said to St. Francis, Rebuild my church, for such a time as this the Lord is calling women asking us to work in the beauty of our natural gifts as women and is saying to us, heal my body. On this, the 50th anniversary of the encyclical Humanae Vitae by Pope Paul VI, Wine is offering the following talk. It is a powerful testimony of mercy and healing, and it is given by one of Wine's very own, a core team member, author, teacher, and speaker, Alyssa Bormis. Wine, Women in the New Evangelization now presents The Hope and Healing of Humane Vitae.
1: Your Excellency, fathers, sisters, honorees, ladies and gentlemen, I'm so grateful to be here and humbled. I'm going to begin my talk, The Hope and Healing of Humane Vitae. This speech will be about five popes, one bishop, about a thousand priests, one philosopher, one encyclical, devastation hope the sacraments healing me and you the first pope he was the pope at the time of my birth was paul VI. i don't remember how i knew but i just knew that we loved him and he was our pope i remember watching midnight mass on tv with my grandma and grandpa and i just knew that was my pope in 1968 he promulgated the encyclical Humanae vitae Although I was only three years old, there was a reaction that I remember. And the reaction took place over years, it was the years of my early memory. There were the voices of many adults, and their voices had a tone. The Pope doesn't have any business in my bedroom. It's not the barrier method. What would he know? He's not married. There was something about the tone that made it stay in my memory. And there was something about the tone that didn't sound loving to the Pope that I already loved. And it solidified in my memory. But an odd thing happened. As I got older and should have been taught about humane Vitae, there weren't the same voices. There was only silence left. In school, I remember two things. I went to a Catholic school. I remember two things when it came to any mention of humane The church is against contraception, so we can't talk about it. The church is against abortion, so we can't talk about it. I didn't really know what either one was. And then there was this general buzz among teenage girls. What is this contraception? A pill? So much about a pill. What could be wrong with a pill? In my neighborhood, silence seemed like the only thing the church was saying. The world was convincing, though, and it marched right in with its own message. Just take the pill, and nothing will happen. And all I could hear in response to the world was silence, which seemed like its own endorsement. Thus began 17 dark years. My first week of college, I completely lost my footing. I contracepted, there were a parade of bad men, there were five good men, and I chased them away as quickly as I could. I was always seeking love, but I always received A wound in May of 1988 I knew that I had to stop the parade of bad men I just knew that much but then in January of 1989 I was raped and became pregnant the only answer I could hear was the answer the world was giving me I was already voting a pro-abortion ticket at that time and any personally opposed but became I'm not personally opposed and especially not in the case of rape In fact, abortion seemed to be the only answer. Any pro-life voice that I had left had faded quickly. So then there was the trip to the abortion mill. God sends messengers to the darkest places, and he sent one to me. As I was in the waiting room, my brother's friend was there with his very pregnant girlfriend. And he recognized me and my friend that came with me because the abortion industry makes you take a friend along to your sin. And so they walked over, and I knew that if I looked at him, I would have to leave. So I didn't look at him, and I refused God's invitation out. I then went to the so-called counselor and told her that I had been raped. She asked, have you contacted the police? No. Are you going to? No. Her very next sentence was, abortion can be an emotional experience, but the overarching emotion is relief. In my case, I suppose you could say that she was right. I had such bad morning sickness from having been pregnant that I couldn't eat. And your body knows immediately when it's not pregnant. So after the abortion, I went home and I had a ham and cheese sandwich, and it was the best ham and cheese sandwich I've ever had, maybe the best sandwich I've ever had. It was glorious. Every bite was more relief. But then the sandwich was gone, and so was the relief. And darkness flooded in. I began a life of intensified promiscuity and just very dangerous situations. A year later, in March of 1990, I found myself pregnant again. This time I went to a different clinic. It was a clinic that's hooked onto a hospital. And in the parking lot, all of a sudden I had this moment of worry, thinking, "Uh uh-oh, it's a, a different brother now. His friend works at that hospital. What if he sees me? He'll know. And then, of course, I reasoned with myself and thought, he's a pulmonary specialist. He's not going to be anywhere near where I'm going to be. So I went in. And the elevator doors opened and it was empty and I was so relieved. So I got on the elevator and I pushed the button and it was the fifth or sixth floor, something like that. And it started to go up and on the second floor it stopped and the doors opened and my brother's friend walked into the elevator. But he was engrossed in a conversation with another doctor and I immediately turned my head away from them. And then of course they moved to the back and they're all looking forward. So I punched the next button as quickly as I could, and I said something about being lost. And I got off on the next floor, and my brother's friend, his voice was behind me, and he said, it's so easy to be lost here. And the way he said lost, and he just drugged that out, lost. I knew that that was the invitation to walk down the stairs, to go to the parking lot, to go home, and to call anyone. But I refused a second invitation from God. I was in the doctor's office in the room and there was a doctor or two or three nurses there and it was sort of like a round robin. It happened that George Bush the elder was president and they began this crazy round robin. They each knew their parts. See, it's just a clump of cells and this is what George Bush wants to take from you. Be sure to hold still. It's your body and you can do what you want with it. And this is what George Bush wants to take from you. There'll be some cramping. It's between a woman and her doctor, and this is what George Bush wants to take from you. I found it odd, because they were the ones who wanted to keep the government out of the doctor's office, but they were bringing it right to me, and it went on and on. And I found it abhorrent, even in that moment, that they would try to brainwash me in my weakest moment, when I was my most vulnerable After the abortion, the second one, my life was now complete darkness and complete self-destruction. There was even a dangerous marriage and my soul was in pieces. I'm divorced and the marriage was annulled. On August 19, 1998, I wrote a note because I intended to kill myself. But I knew one thing. My mother said that she was on her way. On her way meant driving five hours, but she was on her way. She just knew there was something wrong in my voice. And I knew that she would be the one to find me, and that she didn't deserve to have that memory of her eighth child emblazoned in her mind, dead. So I said to God, I'll give you one shot at this. (laughs) He took me up on it. (laughs) In order to explain the weight of abortion, I talk about the paperwork that you need to sign, and of course there's the small print, but they never tell you about the invisible print. If you have an abortion, it's as if you agree to the invisible print, and you agree to carry an anvil above your head for the rest of your life. And in my case, I chose to carry two anvils above my head. And if your elbow gets weak, you just repeat the abortion mantras over and over. It's my body, I can do what I want with it. It's just a clump of cells. And if your elbow weakens, you have to repeat the mantras over and over, faster and faster, louder and louder. You could say that in a certain sense, I was the voice for abortion because I just had to keep those anvils above my head. And then the worst day and the best day come together. The worst day is when the anvils fall on your chest and you can't breathe. But as soon as you say the truth, I killed my babies, you can take a breath. And then the healing begins. In the spring of 1999, I went to confession with Bishop Paul Dudley of happy memory. I think a lot of you probably remember him. I went to his house, actually, and I was afraid that he was going to kick me out. But you know already what I didn't know. At the end of the confession, in that beautiful, breathy voice of his, he said, Alyssa, imagine the rejoicing in heaven today for one sinner coming home. And in a single sentence, he brought me all the way back to the fold. Then when I was leaving, he stopped me right in the doorway. And he said in a firmer voice, Alyssa, God has forgiven you. Now go home and do the hard work of forgiving yourself. I was stunned. I didn't think that forgiving myself was going to have to be a part of it. Years later, a professor of mine and now friend, Father Paul Murray, said in a class, the Holy Spirit wants you to put down the broomstick you've been beating yourself up with. So amazing when we can forgive ourselves and quit beating ourselves up. So this began this journey home. And I had this beautiful journal. And in the past in my life, when I'd write in a journal, it was all this self-seeking craziness. (laughs) So I thought, I need to write something. The journal is so beautiful, I don't want to have to come back and read it and be embarrassed. So I better write something good in it. So I began to write what I would learn at Mass. I was at Mass on July 14, 2002, and this is what I wrote in my journal. The priest had given a homily about contraception. I now understand that in my life, birth control was so I could do what I wanted, when I wanted. I was putting myself in control. God should be in control. Also the birth control gave a green light to allowing other men to use me. In my eyes, I thought that because of birth control, nothing would happen. What I didn't take into consideration was my soul. Nothing did happen, as in my soul seemed to be nothing. It was this vast wasteland of nothingness. My self-worth was nothing. What men thought of me was nothing. And nothing happened. I didn't find what I was looking for. I got nothing back from these men. There was nothing to show for all this fun. It was nothing. I still felt empty. Without birth control, one must finally realize what one is engaging in. We must put God first, not the physical first. In that, a different sort of nothing will happen. Nothing bad will happen to your soul. In the sanctity of marriage, I will have nothing to worry about in terms of my husband respecting me. He will have already committed his soul to mine before he has committed his body, and nothing will be better. So many people think that nothing will happen with contraception, and I tell them, you're right. Nothing will happen. Nothing has become an epidemic. In the summer of 2003, Bishop Dudley was telling me that I was wasting my life. What, me? <laughs> wasting my life? And it was a Sunday night, and I think he was particularly exasperated with me. <laughs> he finally just stated, oh, here's what you're going to do. In the fall, you're going to go to St. Thomas. You're going to get your master's in Catholic studies. Then next year, you're going to go to Rome for a year, not just a semester. No one gets the Roman experience in just a year. <laughs> Tomorrow, you're going to call Don Briel and tell him that I said he has to do whatever he has to do to get you in this fall. (laughs) So the next day, I called Dr. Briel at Catholic Studies and told him that Bishop Dudley told me to tell him that he had to do whatever he had to do to get me in this fall. And there was the pause, if anyone knows Dr. Briel, and he finally said, well, you better come pick up a packet. (laughs) So in the fall of 2003, I began my Master's in Catholic Studies. Just as a side note, Bishop Cousins was the chaplain at my residence in Rome that following year at the Bernardi residence. Was I your favorite student? <laughs> of course I was. He nodded very emphatically just now. <laughs> it was February 2004, my second semester of the Master's program, and enter the philosopher, Dr. Catherine Jack Devil. She gave us an assignment that would change everything. Read Paul VI, Humanae Vitae. And then there was this paragraph. Responsible men can become more deeply convinced of the truth of the doctrine laid down by the church on this issue if they reflect on the consequences of methods and plans for artificial birth control. Let them first consider how easily this course of action could open wide the way from marital infidelity and a general lowering of moral standards. Not much experience is needed to be fully aware of human weakness and to understand that human beings, and especially the young who are so exposed to temptation, need incentives to keep the moral law. And it is an evil thing to make it easy for them to break that law. Another effect that gives cause for alarm is that a man who grows accustomed to the use of contraceptive methods may forget the reverence due to a woman and disregarding her physical and emotional equilibrium, reduce her to being a mere instrument for the satisfaction of his own desires, no longer considering her as his partner whom he should surround with care and affection. I must have read this paragraph a hundred times. Paul VI had predicted my life and the lives of my generation, and no one thought to tell us. Instead, we were just met with silence. In 2011, I read Humanae Vitae again, and this time what stood out to me was the call for it to be taught. The church wasn't silent. Paul VI appealed to educators, public authorities, scientists, doctors, and other medical professionals, husbands and wives, priests and bishops. In 1968, the Holy Father called these people to teach, to teach humane Vitae. Would I have listened if I had been taught? I did listen. It was just that I was taught by the world. But I also heard the silence and acted on it. If Humanae Vitae had been taught, would I have listened? I'll never know, but I would have loved the opportunity. I don't have the poor me's, I have the poor my generation and the succeeding generations. I'm a 49-year-old woman, although I look 29. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) After a life of promiscuity and danger, I'm the mother of two dead children, divorced, and aging alone. My situation is not rare. I have bought and paid for my position, and the currency was contraception, abortion, and the abundance of nothing. Back to 1978. It was the death of Paul VI, and I remember it well, and then the election of John Paul I, the smiling Pope, and then his death a month later, the election of John Paul II, And then at his installation mass, those incredible words, be not afraid, open. Indeed, open wide the doors to Christ. Be not afraid. Christ knows what is inside a person. Only he knows. Even though he said it then, I didn't really hear it until 2004 and 5 when I was in Rome. Be not afraid. I have been so often afraid. To not be afraid was a act of trust and it was so difficult at first but it was so amazing every time I did trust open wide the doors to Christ yes became my answer and the ride has been wild then while living in Rome on October 31st 2004 nearly to the hour six years later nearly to the hour of one of the worst moments of my life and there were many worst moments of my life I wanted so desperately to die those six years earlier. But on October 31st, 2004, I was in the papal apartments and kissing the ring of John Paul II. And when I met him, I said, thank you for bringing me home. I was there at the death of John Paul II and there for the election of Benedict. And through some wild providence, I had tickets with the minor diplomats for the installation mass of Benedict. And right before the homily, my group, because we had the good tickets, (laughs) we received a booklet with the homily in it in all, I don't know how many different languages, but one in English. And he said, We are not some casual and meaningless product of evolution. Each of us is the result of a thought of God. Each of us is willed. Each of us is loved. Each of us is necessary. In that moment, at the homily at the installation mass, there was the collision of connections, of years coming together. I was willed. My children were willed. We were loved. We are necessary. Everything met in that moment. Then Benedict quoted John Paul II, do not be afraid, open wide the doors for Christ. On that day, I super heard John Paul II, and I felt so alive at some point in this whole election and all the festivities that follow one of my friends said to me wouldn't it be great to be here next time when a pope is elected and i said no i couldn't take it (laughs) it's so physically exhausting but be careful what you say you're not going to do right in 2013 i was in rome with the chesterton academy and we were there for the installation mass of Francis. We were in line by 3 a.m. or some crazy hour like that. When we got into the square, I got the students to the barriers so they would be close to the Holy Father. But I went to the colonnade. Something else was happening. Now for the really wild ride. I went to sit in nearly the same place I had sat while JP Two was dying. All my popes were coming together. All my life was coming together. We were there in March. March holds the anniversary of the death of my first child, and March holds the anniversary of the conception of my second child. At my spot on the colonnade, I met again Paul VI, John Paul I, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and now Francis. There were the thousand priests who helped to bring me home. And there was that one bishop, Bishop Dudley. He was with me. He was the one who named my children. He named them both Francis. The installation mass of Pope Francis was the collision of everything. And I knew on the colonnade among the thousands of strangers, I was at home and safe in the arms of the church. Now it comes to you. Pope Francis told the young, right after the start of his pontificate in Assisi, not to be afraid to get married and to start a family. To those of you who are married, have children. Have lots of them. Another thing Pope Francis has preached, and if I may say so, His Excellency Bishop Cousins consistently preaches it as well, have mercy. Meet the sinner with mercy. When you meet me, And my sisters and brothers, those who have participated in abortion, have mercy on us. Love us. Bring Mm. us home. And then show us the wild truth of *Humane Vitae. We're back where we started with Paul VI. You must read Humanae Vitae. You must learn it. You must teach it. And you must Live it. Be not afraid of the gift of humane Vitae. Be not afraid to be a voice for life. And now we're back to the very beginning. The five popes. They have known the whole time. Say yes to life. One bishop, Paul Dudley, who is still so alive. About a thousand priests who never gave up on me. One philosopher, Kathy Devil now a friend who gave me the assignment that changed my life. One encyclical, Humane Vitae, it is sublime. Devastation, which never wins. Hope, which is available to all. The sacraments, especially confession and the Eucharist, which forgive our sins. Healing, which is possible if you allow it. Healing is waiting, mercy is waiting. And you, you must go now. And like His Excellency Bishop Cousins, the Champions of Life honorees, you must boldly live the culture of life. Be not afraid.
0: Be not afraid. These are words that we each need to hear again. Wine, Women in the New Evangelization, hopes that you have been moved by listening to The Hope and Healing of Humane Vitae by Alyssa Bormas. We also hope that you share this gift with your family, friends, your parish, and with anyone who could be helped by hearing it. On this 50th anniversary of Humane Vitae, Wine is grateful to be able to give this gift to you. You may find out more by contacting Alyssa Bormus, downloading the talk, and supporting wine at catholicvineyard.com.